In this edition of the podcast, reimagining the art and designs of Florence Broadhurst. More a force of nature than an individual, Florence Broadhurst was a woman who was able to both understand and steer the zeitgeist. In a collaboration between artists Claire Healy and Sean Cadiro, the exhibition titled After the Gap Year explores the period she worked in her father's Queensland pub after arriving back from Shanghai, but before starting her world-famous textile and wallpaper business. I'm Tim Stackpole, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again as we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced and downloaded, and we pay our respects to First Nations people around the world, whether they be past, present or emerging, And a reminder too that a transcript of this edition is available in the episode's description at www.insidethegallery.com.au made possible by the Australian Arts Channel, available to view for free at www.australianartschannel.com.au. Well, she's certainly an enigma. Florence Broadhurst is known as an artist and designer, particularly of wallpapers, and remains legendary for that and other things. And interest in her work enjoys attention every so often, such as today, as artists Claire Healy and Sean Cadiro present a collection of their works inspired by Florence Broadhurst, open at the Ensmith Gallery in Paddington in Sydney until the 29th of October. There is a link to the gallery in the description of this episode at www.insidethegallery.com.au but it's certainly worth knowing that in creating these new works, the artists undertook extensive research into Florence Broadhurst, accessing artefacts and details from both the State Library of New South Wales and the Powerhouse Museum, where Claire and Sean are in conversation with our good friend from the Powerhouse, Professor Pedram Kosronajad. All right. As a curator at the Powerhouse Museum, I would like just let me know for the first time. Why you were interested to Florence Broadhurst? It's very strange because we were talking about that this morning and we couldn't quite remember what was the first thing that really grabbed us. But really a lot of things about Florence Broadhurst's life really runs in parallel to our general interests and the interests of our work. So really her life was kind of really informed by modern technology in a lot of senses, like her ability to move the access that she had to different cultures and different parts of the world, things that she could see was brought about by new technologies in movement and then also the technologies that she used to create her wallpapers. So, And then just she's a really massive figure. And, well, uh, she was really ahead of her time, you know, to think about how she brought wallpapers to the masses of Australia in, in the 60s mm-hmm. and something that was so vibrant and just you know, crazy, and then be able to then export that as well back overseas. Mm. I mean, in the same way that technology has been an aid for her in being able to access these other cultures, she's also been able to use that technology to also export her ideas Mm. and wallpapers. A lot of our work does use the found object, but that led us to thinking more about cultural appropriation and thinking about design and cultural appropriation and really... I think Florence's output really opens up a lot of questions about that and is very interesting and about it says a lot about how Australia was opening up during that time and then but then also yeah what is how those kind of images and how those the design became part of Australian life it's interesting 
She was indeed forefront of her time. When I was looking at, for my own interest, you know, Florence Baltus and Middle East and Islamic art, when I went through her materials, she did write a letter at age of 15. And clearly in that letter talks like an adult philosopher that she said, I know what I want to do and I will be a great person. I will be a good artist, put my things in humanity. That in her adulthood, we don't see media talk about her like these. But when personally I went through her materials and life journey, as you said, she was really clever. She was not only artist, she was very clever art director, I can say, could see the market, you know, and sell herself and her arts and crafts to different cultures. She, being a British or British speaker, could help her in, you know, first, I think, departure to Asia, China, be really good entrepreneur, create her own company, you know, in China, for uh, dance, for singing, for being a couturier, fashion designer, and even changed the name, no? Went to mm. London as Madame Poulier. Madame Poulier. Even though she couldn't speak French. <laughs> no, and she said, and she said, I'm French. She said, I'm French. Yeah, how far is and, London from France? And, and, and issued visiting card that I did see, you know, visiting card, Madame Poulier, uh, come here. And all of the magazines in London did write about, you know, her, this French designer. And went to France, said, I'm British, not Australian. And in good time, she returned to Australia. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. You know, I, the timing, I think, the was The timing, fantastic. she knew very well the calendar of events and when the country maybe meets her or she can really well place after all of these journeys to Asia, to Europe. Second World War, veterans are returning and she became a big patron of veterans and raising funds, fundraiser. Mm. Well, she, any opportunity any she opportunity, could have to be seen within exactly. you know, the public eye, within that, well, what she would call her people. Exactly. You know, and it was all a, a promo in, or promotional tool in a yeah. way as well. But I think maybe some of it came from her heart too. I think she was a real socialite, but, you know, as Pedram was talking about that kind of manifesto that she wrote when she was 15. Yes. Very from the heart. It's like she wants to tells like what kind of person she wants to be although i think she's much more complex than that like she's very like, complex and really for who what 15 year old thinks like that like what am i going to be what am i going to give to society? am i going to be true to myself all these kind of things and then i think though all those kind of things she spoke about were in lesser or greater parts like of her her life when uh, how she lived it exactly and um Sorry, I, I don't know whether I... I uh, and no, and, and again, through this personal material, I when she returned to Australia, she was very well connected to institutions, to religious institutions, church for charity fundraising, many communication that she had with the wife and families of veterans or those who lost in the war, you know, back to Australia. And then she created, you know... Uh, many art gallery directors. She received many invitations to Opera House, you know, for fundraising. This is amazing. They are part of her life that 
really I hope one day um, someone open these things for the public but as an artist also after the war you know here she began to paint and present herself as an artist there are letters that she did write to the director of galleries and I did find two three letters that she was invited as a keynote speaker to talk about art and philosophy and she's really talking about French art philosophy uh, British philosophy of art which I think if in age of 15 she did write that beautiful letter in those age she knew very well how to market herself and her work and when she created that wallpaper business I think she was mature enough to know okay now it's time to really change, you know, the map of design and Australian design and fashion in the country. It's kind of interesting, like, um, your use of the word created the wallpaper business because it was kind of, in a sense, it was more like co-opted, in a sense. like uh, Yeah, it was John Lang, wasn't it? He, who had hired out some premises when she had the trucking company yes. with her husband. Because initially she said she was like... Um, she saw his business that wasn't going very well kind of thing. And she was like, why do you want to make wallpaper in this godforsaken country? That's mm. the quote that I've read. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little confused with that because I think she, it may have been a um, wrapping paper and a fabric or oh. um, company. But then she had, well, it, it could have been wallpaper, but I'm not sure. There's some conflicting oh. um, references. But, but she, could see the, she could see the possibilities with it. And then so, like, because, like, he... He was having issues with coming up with the rent and whatnot, mm. and then she kind of slowly co-opted his business, and maybe he was working for her for a little bit, and then kind of just... He did. And I think this is after that she moved to Paddington, no? Uh, yeah. That part. So th I think that might have been in Chatsworth. Mm. But then also our idea, of, our concept of Paddington is quite different now than what it was in those days. Like yes. Paddington was a lot more working class in those days. Mm. A lot of people yeah. that lived underneath the, where the Harbour Bridge was, got moved to where Paddington is now. So it's not like, when we say Paddington, it's like... <laughs> no, yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> so um, then you, it was our first contact. Now you reached Powerhouse and asked to visit, you know, our collection and archive. Uh, how was your uh, visit to the our archive at Powerhouse of uh, those three boxes of Florence Bolthurst material publications. It was useful for you. What did you get <laughs> from that? Well, I think your initial lead first to go to the State Library mm. was fantastic. I mean, there were so many personal little scribbles and, you know, um, a lot of diary um, amazing it was like going through her really personal that. Yes. archive that was very strange it was almost like someone had gone through you know the second drawer in her wardrobe and just tipped it into an archival box or something like oh, that oh totally because <laughs> yeah. there were all her invitations mm. and everything, everything yeah is there. so but then coming here and, and checking out some of the you had three boxes of archives here mm. which we were um I mean, it was also very, very helpful. But I think what we were longing for was to see the materiality of the wallpaper. Mm. And I, I know that everything exists on online. Uh, online. So and our, I know our online catalogue was useful for you? Uh, oh, very. To, to, yeah, all right. Yeah, Because totally. majority of her works, majority of them digitised. Mm. Uh, it's fantastic to be able I to have that access. So 
can, can I just yes. one thing that was interesting about going through the archives um, was that it's very strange in that it's a lot of it was promotional material and yes. a lot of it in you know commercial side of things, but it seems like there's almost like a some kind of natural flow where there's like a Florence Broadhurst revival, like every ten mm, years or something like that. So like true. People, a new generation of people rediscover Florence Broadhurst mm. and like, oh my God, like what is this? And this well, is- I think she was amazing, clever person. I think after her, she wanted people to see her legacy. Those albums that she cut from China until I don't know Paddington shows historical development of. Florence Broadhurst, Madame Pellier, and Florence Broadhurst in Sydney, no? Mm-hmm. So it is like visual diary of her life and business showed the development of who am I, who I was, and where I'm going. And it's really nice that you see that. Just in that point, when you went to State Library material of Florence Broadhurst, any physicality of those material inspired you for the art that you created after her or no? It's probably the online archive yes. that, that actually first inspired us, you know, with the, the, the colours yeah. and yes. the patterns. Yes. And actually her persona, you know, she is this individual that has done amazing things and has had like such an incredible, you know, she's like a Svengali. She's had many lives within mm-hmm. her life. Mm-hmm. And I think... I don't know. I, I feel like our practice has always looked at the lone individual. Um, I mean, we've, we've looked at a lot of other literary things within past bodies of works like Jack Kerouac's On the Road and Luigi Barzini's... Um, Luigi Barzini. Barzini's... Um, <laughs> peaking Paris. to Paris. Yeah, <laughs> Peaking to Paris. And just this idea that, like, an individual really... You know, there is this idea of... Um, the individual, but then it really takes a, um, a society or it takes many people to... To basically enable that person to do what they want to do. Exactly, to yeah. Let's go mostly now on talk about your work mm-hmm. and why you choose this support, which is, you know, um, metal and paper, but used material, actually. Some, somehow you are recycling something. Yeah, well, well I think... Our practice has always, you know, used the found object and I think we've used her designs as, you know, in in a similar way, using it as a found object which is um, being used and upon like the, the canvas of our car turrets. So what we've done is we've taken some roofs or ceilings of cars and initially we were interested in cars that maybe we're from Japan or Korea or different models and makes. And then we thought, well, that would be interesting if we then, you know, used like a Japanese-inspired design of Florence's and paint that on the inside of the of the car turret. In a sense, it's a little bit fun. In yeah. a sense, like where there's always an issue with um, appropriation of symbols or use of symbols and what, you can and cannot put on a, a wall in a sense. And so we were kind of having fun with that in a sense of all, if someone says, oh, well, how come you're using this Japanese um, design and you put this on this wall? But would somebody also say, oh, why did you take this Japanese car and put it on the wall? It's like, so what parts of cultures are you allowed to borrow or what kind of parts of cultures uh, should you leave alone mm. or this kind of thing? How about uh, 
the booze uh, boxes and how you came to this context. How why you, this amazing? Because I was really amazed. <laughs> in a sense, it's also another piece of fun, really. I think um, maybe more in the past, maybe it doesn't happen so much, but it's a real trope. The kind of when you see like architectural drawings on the back of a drink coaster or a napkin or something like that, it's very... And these off-the-cuff ideas are just like quickly sprawled out on like a, a napkin. Mm. Yeah, we were playing along with that idea, but we wanted to focus on a particular period of Florence's life, which is when she had come back from Shanghai and travelling um, throughout Asia and to India with... What were they called? The, the Globetrotters. The Globetrotters. Mm. Yeah, that's when she was known as Bobby Broadhurst. Yeah. But then she came back to her hometown, Mount Perry, where her Bobby. father owned a pub. Yeah. And So yeah. she was a barmaid at the, her father's pub. So really it's, we're creating these kind of anachronistic objects, mm. thinking, <clears throat> taking, extrapolating from her life, thinking about, oh, while she was working, she'd had all this, was it five years or seven years in Shanghai? And then coming back to a country pub and what was in her head. She'd seen so many Well, they things. had that, you know, uh, younger age, she had accidents, no? Well, exactly. Well, that's, a thing. <laughs> well, that's also where we thought, well, that it works, you know, with the idea of using these car turrets because, <laughs> you know, she may have been intoxicated at the time. Who knows? But... She um, took, it was her father's new car. Yeah. It was a it's new an accident. It was very bad, damaged yeah. badly. But it was total Florence because instead of pressing the brake, she pressed the accelerator yeah, exactly. and that's her life. She yeah. was like pressing the accelerator, you know, and then so, and she fractured her skull. Yeah. But look what she went on to do beyond that. We, mm. we started thinking, hang on, was that like a, a case of acquired savant syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes like, I don't know if everybody knows like acquired savant syndrome. It's like if you can, sometimes people get a head trauma. Yes. And then suddenly they're like a mathematical wizard or something. It's very cartoon kind of, yeah. thing. but it does happen when, Real life, and so that was kind of like a conceit within. Oh, imagine if Florence Brill her suddenly became like a designing genius from that car accident. Mm. So, how you choose then which design or pattern, color of Florence Brill has you want, and how it works with this booze design or this car part? I think. Um, in a sense, it's kind of an overcompensation situation where because we're sculptors, we don't usually work with colour. So we're very, very conscious of colour. So we got like, we did a lot of research on colour combinations and colour, um, especially, especially like uh, Orientalist uh, colour matching and how... The significance probably of not so much culturally. Not so much significant, just but what works. Yeah. Because like the, the colour matching isn't obvious. And then so not only when we were painting the the booze boxes we were also thinking about the backing yes that we were gonna so because we knew that there was like some parts with the holes in it and stuff mm -hmm. like that so the actual mount the way the um, work is mounted is really intrinsic within oh, right. the um the outcome viewing thing so well uh, i think it's also just a case of um sculptors trying to be painters <laughs> here yes. we are working on a, a canvas that really is a 3d object but we've somehow like we do with a lot of our um, work, we somehow flatten it out or we cut it up or we pull it apart to um, analyse the object mm. in a way. And I think maybe we've done that. So what's your basic technique? What, what are the materials that you use for booze? So we went to the local bottle shop and First of all, asked if we could go into their bin 
Well, Maybe. first of all, we started off with the cooking wine and just used a um, a cask <laughs> of, um, I don't know, de Bortoli uh, Chardonnay. But it seemed really, even that technology is quite similar in time period to when Florence was, the idea of the, the box wine is actually like an Australian invention. Really but there's amazing. something very and amazing. And it's so suburban, it's so middle class. Yeah. And it goes so well with the whole opening up of culture, the way like Florence Broadhurst that time, you can imagine like a box of cask wine in front of one of her wallpapers. It just, it's got that kind of... Well, she was engaged with paper. We know that because, you know, she imported for the first series of work, uh, those wallpaper from Scandinavian countries. And later on, she could find a way that produced them here. It's amazing. Like, I mean, she, she came up with her own technique exactly. to print upon metal, yep. which is so hard. Like anybody... Well, Anybody would say, why do you want to do something like that for? It's just stupid. It's so hard. But metal. it seems like the impossible, doesn't yeah. it? Like and that mylar imagine... material that she uses like a, has a mirror surface. Yes, it's exactly, so mirror surface. But could you imagine her trying to explain that to some lab guy or some engineer? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't <laughs> ever done that. What do you want to do that for? It, can you imagine like how powerful her personality was to be able to just push that through like anybody oh go away you silly woman you can't do that it's well never she been did done manage she... the trucking business for a while and you know <laughs> just to imagine her her flamboyance and her no but she's like <sighs> when yeah. you listen and watch her there are some documentaries after oh, her no, i don't know if you didn't see it or not no. the way that she talks the way that she express herself is really like a gentleman really sure of herself and you know this is my business this is my art everything's done by hand i do everything <laughs> i go you know she's really you know yeah. consider herself you know as real producer artist and anyway let's back to <laughs> technique of I, i'm i would like to know after preparation of the booze boxes what type of did you draw them first and then painted them or directly you paint on the oh, we, paper? I think we sanded the surface okay. first because a lot of, I mean, every booze box was unique in its own sense because it was all on a, you know, a different type of paper or cardboard. Mm. And so the surface had to be prepared first. And But I did see you use the surface too very well. Some of your work, you know, you didn't, you use, you know, the uh, damage of the, paper oh. as a part of paper <laughs> maybe that's which... something that we're very drawn to though. yeah you know okay. when, when there is some kind of hint of um some past action that may have happened to that object it, or there's a mystery do you consider it as that accident that i just asked for these are part of accidents sure. do you consider it's it that in... kind of design sense yes like, you know, when you make something, you always try to do your best, but mm. then there's always uh, always the possibility of making something a little bit too. Object, objects guide you to perfect, do do yeah. like this, or you know, it's kind of similar in the way like uh, ceramics is taken like kintsuge or something like that, where you break something, put it back together. And it's the imperfection that makes it, or the kind of idea of like um, the roughness of like Japanese tea ceremony bowls. So it's uh, it compared to like the perfection of Chinese tea ceremony well. Now, thinking about the rough, when something is a little bit rough, sometimes that gives it something more rather than being too, too perfect. So definitely texture was important for you in this series. There's little, little yeah, here and there. I think it's something that you really have to go with the flow with. Okay. You know, like sometimes it can seem too forced or, for instance, one of our earlier 
large-scale installations was where we took a house from a property and relocated it into a gallery space, art space gallery. And um, in that time, we were going to sort every single component that comprised that house, like all the carpets were going to go in one bag and then all the wood would go into another and then all the, all the different materials were going to be sorted. But then once we saw the relationship between the house and the architecture of the gallery in which the house was coming into, we thought, oh, hang on, we need to re-look at this and re-think about how we present this because there is a relationship and a conversation going on between the materiality yeah, and the space. And, and it's something that we, I think we try to do that. Like as we work with any found material, it's not until you're actually engaging with it, tearing it apart, cutting it up, that it takes on its own journey in a way. But we try to pick up on those things, I guess. And why acrylic, if you don't mind? Oh. Acrylic was the best medium that you found is closer to Florence Bolfest. <laughs> Or this is what you prefer, mm -hmm. acrylic? We were doing a, a residency in Sapporo and um, we made friends with this artist who was using this special acrylic gouache and uh, he introduced it to us and it's, we were just really drawn to it in that it's super flat. It has yeah, it's this got a very, very matte mm, finish. Mm. It's magical. So once you put it on, it's something, it's quite different to usual paint and so there's something a little bit magic in the depth, the intensity of it. So yeah. I think... We kind of really just used that in it. We fell in love with this material pretty mm. much. And it was a bad time to, to fall in love with it because <laughs> of the pandemic. You know, it was actually, we couldn't buy this paint in Australia. And then we tried to get it from Japan and realized we can't get impossible. it. The, the, the shipping mm. kind of constraints during um, the whole pandemic was also something that was tricky. So we had to end up buying it from London. And when we come to Florence Broadhurst and reproduction of her designs, me as a curator always ask myself copyright. So, and I know by, you know, uh, experience here, there are many, many, you know, like signature prints, uh, David Lenny, who really sacrificed big part of his, I think, life and business to collect all of the designs of Florence Bolthurst more than, I think, two, three hundred frames of silk prints are actually in his archive. He explained to me that there are issues with copyright of, you know, using the designs or reproduction. Do you think, uh, did you think about the question of copyright? If you are imitating, you are not using her work, but you are imitating somehow very close to Florence Broadhurst artworks, mm. What do you think about that? Well, I feel like we're using Florence Broadhurst designs. It's not like we're branding not him. acknowledging mm. that these are Florence Broadhurst. Yes. We're using that as a found object. And we're actually, it's an investigation of a period of her life. And it's more like a homage or a, mm. a pastiche. Nice homage, nice. 21st century globalization <laughs> period, I think, homage or post-COVID homage altogether. Um, but, but it's not like we're going to go on and print a whole production line of, you know, boxes. I think it's just an interesting conundrum within yeah, itself in the true. sense of like thinking about copyright, intellectual mm. property, when I don't think Florence did. 
No. A lot <laughs> so, of her designs were inspired this by... This is a very good point. By because, William Morris. Like, and well, even some of her employees have said, you know, we looked up, um, she would, in her travels, collect um, wallpapers, samples and kimono fabrics and her employees would actually copy them and then... Well, I interviewed those that still are among us and they said, well, many of these designs are our design, not Florence Protest's <laughs> design. We were a student. She hired us in, in a workshop and we did design many, many things. You know and that some of them actually secretly put their signatures yes. <laughs> on, onto the wallpaper. So they've got their little personal... Yes, and, 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 and this is beautiful things that happens, you know, and still when I told you there are a lot to talk about and see more. We need to really study very carefully artworks or the frames of silk screens to see, you know, the trace of those who work with her. And, but this is true. Anyway, in the end of their legacy goes to Florence, but definitely there are many, many labors behind that, young, talented students, designers of the period. Uh, today they are in their 80s, you know, and, you know, uh, they talk openly about what happened. But in a... In a sense, it's very similar. To think about it, it's very similar to the way music has worked in the 20th century, really. Like, when you think about American music and, like, the roots of it being in, like, blues or, you know, things like that, and then, then becoming rock music and then that rock music getting sampled and, you know, who owns sound who, and then who owns, like, who owns these symbols? So, Flor- I mean, it, do we believe in a kind of um, a folk? Is it a kind of folk art? Or is it, does it become, can somebody own these things? Mm. It's very strange, like, you know, because people put time and effort into these things, so obviously people feel that they, they own mm. designs or whatever. So it's like, so like does, is cultural culture able to move on when we live, th- always thinking about copyright and stuff like that? How do we move on through culture? Because culture is about building upon other people's knowledge. That's how we... Culture. You develop the culture, yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So then if everything's always like tied up legally, are we going to progress or are we going to stagnate? It's, gonna, it's kind of, of course, we have to be careful that people don't get things stolen from them. Yeah. But then on the other hand, we need to progress also, or not progress, keep things fluid. Yeah. You know? mm. in, a, in a way, I feel like this project is, you know, we are appropriating uh, the appropriator. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Very, very, very n- nicely said. May I ask, what's the next step for you after this project? What's post Florence Walthast? Mm. Yeah, we've got a number of things on the boil. We've got like um, a big show out at the new Mudgy Arts Precinct, mm. which is happening towards the end of 2023. And we're the looking. Next, the next big thing. You finish oh, well, up your well, what we're really. We have our fingers crossed for. A residency in Tokyo in December oh, this year, but really? it all depends if funding comes through and if. No, no. The next big thing is big public work in Parramatta. So this is um, Parramatta Square, which is a new thing. It's uh, our new sculpture that we've just had created in working with uh, UIP in Brisbane, and it's a eight meter aluminium cast wow, uh, bus. Wow! Congratulations. Where's it's happening? It's very crazy. Yeah, it's like it's in there right now, and it's. Basically, it's very fun in that it talks a lot about the local history of Parramatta. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so similarly to this project, I guess mm. it, it picks up on local histories and yes. we've looked at um, 
one of the first Lebanese migrants, she bought property within Parramatta. So we're, we've got this bus that's like an old Leyland. Who was um, that? 1960s uh, That's bus. Rosie Bin- Rosie, Brohin. Yeah, Brohin. Have you her, heard of Her that? name changed to no- Rosie O'Brien, in the, but her married name is Rosie Norman. Oh, right. And, yeah. Um, so it's very interesting. You, within her life, you can see this kind of transculturation and shifts and stuff like that. But she bought property in... In 1922, is it in in Parramatta? So it's very interesting the relationship that Parramatta has with the um, Kfarab community Mm. and how deeply it goes. We wanted to make something that did reference uh, kind of like non-European immigration into into the town. So there's like a lot of layers to the work, but the major thing is the the bus that because it's Parramatta, Mm -hmm. um, it's based upon uh, in the 1980s the um, Parramatta Eels won their premiership and in the when they had a big party they actually burnt their own stadium down oh wow <laughs> so, so the it's coach, such a Parramatta story it's yeah so the coach then Jack Gibson they didn't have a stadium to they had nowhere to train yeah mm-hmm. so Jack Gibson their coach at the time went and bought an old government bus for them to have their meetings within yeah and so for the next two years after that 1981 premiership they went on to win two more Premierships, Premierships, being coached out of that bus. Yeah, so what we've done is we've got this eight-metre um, bus that's it, it's actually on its end, its headlights are heading to the heavens, and it looks like a massive trophy. Uh, well, I know that your exhibition that we talk today will be open to the public to 29th October at Smith Gallery in Paddington. And yeah, we're super excited. We're working with um, Nicholas Smith in um, Paddington. It'll be our first show with him. Please come along. We will. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tim, for being with us and hosting us. Mm, you're very welcome, as always, Pedram. And thanks to Claire Healy and Sean Cadero for that conversation. Florence Broadhurst will remain legendary, of course, not only because of the designs she created and the business she built, but also due to the manner of her death in October 1977, her murder that still remains one of the great unsolved Sydney mysteries. Claire and Sean's After the Gap Year is at the N. Smith Gallery until October 29. Details at nsmithgallery.com or find a link at our website www.insidethegallery.com.au along with a transcript of this edition thanks to the Australian Arts Channel. That's the podcast for this edition, and until next time, I'm Tim Stackpole. Bye-bye for now.